Hey, folks, welcome once again to another episode of There's Just Something About Kansas City, where we have these very positive conversations about the people, places, and things that make this such a great city to live in. And I couldn't be happier or more honored than to have the young lady across from me, uh, former Kansas City Mayor Kay Barnes, is here with me today. Mayor, thank you so much for taking some time out of, and I know, you're still very, very busy with everything you're doing, but taking some time out for us today on There's Just Something About Kansas City. Well, happy to be with you. Yeah, it's great. Let's talk a little bit about your background. We're going to go way back. We're going to go to uh, back up to St. Joe, Missouri. Um, give us a little bit of your background. I know you're an only child, and your dad was a uh, was an educator and a coach uh, at that time. Just talk a little bit about your upbringing in St. Joe, Missouri, and, and all the things that happened positive to get Kay Barnes, to where she ended up today. Well, St. Joe was a great place to grow up. There are a lot of us from Kansas City living here now who grew up in St. Joe, and we reminisce about what a great education we received there and some of the other wonderful elements of being there. And my family was pretty involved in St. Joe in that my father was a high school football and basketball coach part of the time I was growing up, and my mother was also a career educator. In fact, Bill Snyder, the former K-State football coach, was one of her junior high students. Oh, wow. And he credits her with having really made a big difference in his life, that he was headed toward being wild, if you could imagine. I cannot imagine that. I cannot. (laughs) I love that. So my mother helped keep Bill Snyder from going wild, which is quite a claim to fame in and of itself. My uh, maiden name was Cronkite, and my uncle was a dentist, as had been my grandfather, And my father was obviously Fritz Cronkite. That was his name. And we were related to Walter Cronkite, the famous commentator. You bet. His father and my father were brothers, so Walter and I were first cousins. And I did have an opportunity to be around him off and on, both when I was growing up in St. Joe and then later as an adult. So that in and of itself was a great family-oriented experience. Yeah, and I hear he was just a great guy. I mean, he was our touchstone every night on on the nightly news. And I mean, he gave you the news. It was just the news at that point. And, uh, but he was just, he was such a beloved newscaster and trusted person in this country. What, what a great individual to be around as, as you grew up. It, well, it was, and I don't think I fully appreciated at the time that I could turn on the early television that we had and watch him cover the national political conventions, for example, and then have an opportunity a week or two later when he came to visit us in St. Joe to just sit around and hear him tell war stories. So mm-hmm. it was a great experience, and what I learned from that in retrospect was that for me to get involved politically myself, I did not have the concern that a lot of people have about exposing yourself publicly. Right. Because in my family, it was a good thing to be public. Of course, he was an extreme example of that. But even in St. Joe with my 
father again, having been a coach and so on. So I was comfortable with public exposure right. pretty early. Yeah, yeah, you were. And, I, and were, is that where the first seeds were planted for you to be political? And I know your father was he was the um, uh, for for the uh, congressman, I think, uh, at one time he was he was his advisor. Well, it was. I think that the term they used then was chief of staff okay. for Congressman Cole, who was a longtime congressman that it, from the area that included St. Joe. And so when I was in high school for two years, my father lived in Washington and my mother oh. and I went to Washington during those summers. One in particular, I think it was 1954 to be with him, and it was an amazing experience. We had passes to the House and Senate because the security at that time was very, very different than it is now. In fact, there was very little of it in comparison to what we currently see. And there was one time during that summer when there was all the furor about Senator McCarthy and the McCarthy hearings. That's and right. Mm-hmm. All of that was going on, and it was the kind of the culmination of him beginning to fall apart because he was a heavy drinker, and that finally took a terrific toll mm-hmm. on him. There was one day that my mother and I had been observing the Senate from the balcony, and we also had passes that enabled us to get on the Senate elevators So my mother and I got on the elevator, and Senator McCarthy and an aide of his also got on the elevator, and there were four of us. We were overhearing his conversation with his aide in which he was disclosing where he wanted to go to kind of escape from all the publicity for two weeks. So my mother and I, although I don't remember where it was now, knew what his destination was going to be. And there was publicity and media coverage all over the country. Where has he gone? It and was you a knew. Big secret. Just think <laughs> if the National Enquirer had been operating then, how much money my mother and I could have accumulated. <laughs> that's right. You, oh, absolutely. That is, yeah, that's fantastic. I'm sure one of a thousand stories from, from Washington, D.C. through those summers. But your dad didn't work for two summers or yes. two years. And then Congressman Cole. Uh, retired, and he was encouraged, my father, to run for Congress. He decided not to, and so that was that. But that exposure for me in high school, I think, had an abiding impact Mm -hmm. on me. It had to. Although I wasn't that conscious of it, but it certainly came into play later. Right. Did your father go back and then teach and coach again after he was done, or did he... he, What did he do at that that point? He went... uh, Actually, he had gone with Quaker Oats uh, as the director of personnel in the big St. Joseph operation at that time. And then uh, he ended up managing a sporting goods store in St. Joe. So he had kind of a checkered career, but certainly sports was always his abiding interest. Yeah, his main thing. And he brought his only child up to love sports as well. And you got, as we talked about, you're the only child. You're female, but, you know, it was a male-dominated thing in those days. And the amazing thing for you is he brought you along, taught you the X's and O's, and it, it didn't matter. And I think a lot of that, and we will talk about this as we go along, is 
this was probably also some of your basis for the trailblazing you did as a woman in so many different areas, not just politics, but also National Speakers Bureau we'll talk about, uh, all those places where you became the first woman mm-hmm. uh, to do a, a lot of these things. And I think it it probably came from your upbringing with your dad just bringing you along and just, you know, just treating you just like a child, just you, I'm going to bring you here. I'm going to take you to football practice. I'm going to teach you why we're handing off to that guy and why we're throwing to that guy and the whole thing, right? I think so. And mm-hmm. I, I don't think it was just my father. It was certainly my mother encouraging me. And if anything, there was maybe too much focus on me at times. I'm sure I felt some of that, but I was not the rebellious type. So Luckily. I went along with it and <laughs> started playing golf and having lessons with that when I was 10. Oh, gosh, and that was way ahead of its time at yeah, that point. So that was an example of really encouraging me in a lot of different directions. Yeah, so you're going to high school at this time, and then you're getting to a point where you're going to have to make a decision on college and really what to do and what I want to do and where I want to go. What, do you remember your thoughts back then as you uh, started to uh, get to your senior year in high school and where you wanted to go and what you wanted to do? I'm probably like a lot of people, at least then. I'm not sure about now. It's a much more orchestrated approach. It had a lot to do in my decision to go to KU based on where some of my friends were going. Which is normal. There was a contingent the previous year that had made that decision to go to KU rather than flocking to MU, as certainly was the case still for many, and it still is today. So uh, I did make the decision to go to KU and certainly have never regretted it. It was a terrific experience in so many ways. Right. And and your major there, I believe, was education, right? And also administration, correct? So you still were, you were still, as you went through KU, decided, you know, both your dad and mom were educators. So I could definitely see that. Yes, for sure. And then you, you added the administration onto it as well. And from a sports perspective, I was there during the Will Chamberlain right. years, <laughs> and that was quite amazing to be caught up in that. Of course, that was a continuation for me of my interest in basketball anyway. So that was terrific. And I did have a class with him, which I did not realize the first day of class when we all came in and sat down. I sat down in the front row, didn't look around that much. And the professor handed out the syllabi to the people in the front rows to, to then pass to the people behind them. So I took my Your packet, B. <laughs> Your and I turned, and it's, it's difficult to describe if I'm not seeing you face to face, but my right arm with a syllabus kept going back and this other arm came around and I couldn't see the elbow yet. <laughs> and it just kept coming and coming. I thought, oh my God. And I looked around and it was Wilt Chamberlain. So when we stood, I'm five six and I my eyes came to his belt buckle. Oh gosh, so. unbelievable. Did you then uh, make acquaintance with him? You talk to him? Did you interact with him at all, just as friends or as classmates? I don't remember doing okay. that. I'm sure I was uh, friendly, but I don't recall any specific conversations. I certainly recall the basketball games and 
his first game at KU when he was actually playing. I think it was an exhibition game. It was Mm -hmm. Northwestern. I do remember that. And there was a great deal of hype, obviously, about him and playing at KU, so much so that where people began to say, well, he can't be that good. And I don't remember how many points he scored in that Northwestern game, but it was over 40. It was just remarkable. And I remember where I sat in Allen Fieldhouse for that game. It's amazing the imprint that something like that makes. And then and then as you go, and, and you're just there as a student, and you're going through your classes day by day, and you see Wilt virtually every week, and then you see him play basketball, and you you probably didn't even realize the turmoil that was going on behind the scenes with him being there, being an African-American athlete there and, and all the all the trouble he had uh, to, uh, to to get through that experience and what that uh, what that imprint was on him as well. No, you're absolutely right. I don't recall being aware of it, obviously, since I've become very aware and, and the wonderful movie that Kevin Wilmot did on Wilt and what those years were like mm-hmm. and so on helped me to understand how semi-oblivious I was at that time. Right, and I think the KU fans. I mean, the fans, basketball fans and the people on campus, they're fine. You know what I mean? Who's Will Chamberlain? He's on our team. We don't care what you think, but for Wilt, it was like sort of like a different experience for him. Well, there's a great story. I don't know if you remember the name Lynn Kindred. Uh-huh. But Lynn is a I think he's recently retired as a cardiologist in Kansas City. He was a fraternity brother of my first husband and now my third husband. So I have known Lynn since college, but Lynn was on the basketball team with Wilt. And Lynn loves to tell the story of a couple of years or maybe less before Wilt died of heart disease. Their paths had not crossed for decades. Lynn got a telephone call one day, and it was from Wilt. And the way Wilt opened the conversation was to say, Lynn, this is Wilt Chamberlain. I don't know if you remember me, but we played (laughs) basketball together at KU. And then he went ahead and asked him some penetrating questions about cardiology and the Mm -hmm. fact that Wilt was beginning to have some real issues with his heart. But I thought it was wonderful that he did not brag to him by saying, surely you remember me. Yeah, well, you know, yeah, absolutely. And Wilt remembers him, and he didn't know if he remembered him uh, well or not. That 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 is a good story. That That's a great story. And then eventually Wilt reconciled with everything that happened yes. and then came back. Yeah, which yes. was wonderful. The letter jacket and the whole thing was just, that was a wonderful moment in time for me. That's imprinted on my mind when that happened with Will Chamberlain. That was fantastic. Well, that I did that. wasn't there for that, but from your perspective, was he, he was genuinely moved? Yes, I have two tears, which uh, everybody was sore. That was the big thing. Wow. He really was moved by this and everybody standing ovations and everything he could put behind him once he had, remember he went to Overbrook High School in Philadelphia. He's from Philadelphia. So, and I remember, 
I went to Villanova, which is right on the the, uh, the Paoli local that went right by Overbrook High School going to and from Penn Station from Villanova. Every time he went by, the conductor sometimes go on, here's Will Chamberlain's High School, you know, right to your right, and all that on, on your way in or way out. And I, so I knew about him before I even got here and where he had been and what he had been through and in the history of him as well, you know. Mm-hmm. So it was, uh, it was, he was always a bigger than life figure uh, in more ways than one. He was just, he was something, but it was great. He came back, he reconciled and he, he got such love from, from the people at the university of Kansas. It was great. Good. It was, it was really terrific. Yeah. Good. It was a wonderful moment. Okay. So Kay is going to graduate from high school now and she's going to go to Kansas and she gets through Kansas and you were Kappa Kappa Gamma, I think, right? Sorority. And um, you get to the university of Kansas, get to the end now, all of a sudden, Kay has to go find a job, and she has a, a father and mother who terrific work ethic has been passed on to you, and I'm sure that was the first thing on your mind. As you get closer and closer and you start exploring options for yourself, what were you looking at right out of the gate? Getting married. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you just burst my balloon here for a second, okay? Like I said, I thought, okay, I'm going to get my career going. I'm going to do this thing. Well, you got to remember, this was 1960. I, I know it was. I know so it was. So I'm sure I had some level of ambition in me because that sure. certainly began to show up in a few years. But at that time, I was engaged okay. to be married and married and then had two children Right. Uh, within three or four years. So I was really focused on that. But then I did, when they were even preschool and early grade school, begin to get involved. I did teach one year at okay. uh, Meadowbrook junior high which was at 87th and mission road it's right there now right and that was a good experience although i realized that i didn't particularly enjoy being in the same room all day every day and that was my way of realizing that i wanted to be out more in the community and being involved in different activities which i then began to do right and uh Talk a little bit about the kids, about Kathy and Fritz, right? Uh, my son is Fritz. My daughter's Kelly. Kelly. I'm sorry. Kelly and Fritz, yes. Well, they're great. They're, <laughs> the, they're the two easiest things in some ways that I think I ever did was to be their mom because they were really terrific growing up and there were very few skirmishes. Right. And I was divorced when they were approximately nine and seven or 10 and eight. Tough and so time. in some ways we really grew up together. And then I was single during that period for 17 years. So that period of time was dramatic for me. And mm-hmm. that not only was I raising the two children on my own, but also began to get involved in other things. So right. today Fritz and Kelly both live in the Kansas City immediate area. That's wonderful. And I have a granddaughter who is married and lives in Denver. And nice just, place to visit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, just a very quick sports-oriented story about Sydney, my granddaughter. When I was mayor from '99 to 2008, 
I went to every Chiefs home game. And of course, I had the two police officers with me mm-hmm. during that time. And Sydney in 1999 was approximately five or six years old. And she went to almost every home game during that eight-year period. Lucky kid. So it was, a, I think, one of the most important ways she and I bonded. So whenever she had a question about the game, she would go up behind me to Marlon Bowie, the wonderful police mm-hmm. officer, and she'd ask the question, then she'd come back and sit down. So when she was about six years old, I leaned over to her at a Chiefs game, and I said, I said, Sydney, do you know what the line of scrimmage is? And she looked at me with great disdain and said, Nanny, everybody knows what the line of scrimmage is. <laughs> well, here's, she shouldn't have gone up to Martin to talk to him. She should have talked to you. Hey, I was the daughter of a football coach. I know all the exes. Now, what are you asking him for? Come here and ask your Well, because she was grandma. in love with Marlon. Oh, okay, I understand. Okay, I got you. I understand now. Now I get it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that, that's wonderful that they um, they basically live here, too, is, is really yep. terrific. Yeah, that, that is really great. That's awesome. Um, so... You are now raising two children on your own. You're a single mom. And you end up, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, one of the first things, you end up with the National Speakers Bureau. Is that correct? Is that one of the first things you did uh, during that period of time? Actually, that came after serving a four-year term on the Jackson County Legislature. Okay, so you're on the legislature first. From 1974 to 78. And then I ran for the city council and served from 79 to 83. Okay. And it was right after that That's when that you went I got to national involved speaker. with okay. national seminars. Right. Before you get the uh, 1999 and become yes. mayor and stuff. Okay. Well, let's talk about the political stepladder. Uh, where, where was, what was your initial inroad uh, political, politically? Actually, it occurred in the old Alameda Plaza Hotel. Remember when the lobby, you had to go down a couple of steps to get into the lobby, and it was a cocktail party of some kind. And two guys about my age who were already involved politically, as I recall, one of them was Lonnie Shelton, and Mike White was the representative from the Waldo South Brookside Mm -hmm. area on the first two-year term Jackson County Legislature because they'd just gone through a change in governance. He was going to run for county executive, which opened up that seat. And in this casual cocktail party conversation, the two guys said to me, you know, you ought to think about running for the county legislature. It had never crossed my mind to do anything like that consciously. (laughs) However, it planted a seed, and within 48 hours, I decided to do it. And it was interesting because I was Kay Waldo at that time. And this is the Waldo district, right? right. (laughs) And I can remember so many people as I went door to door and so on during the campaign saying to me, well, I don't know anything about you, but with that last name, I'll vote I'm voting for you. For you. Exactly. You had an automatic brand. Yes. <laughs> it was just, I did. It was perfect. Yeah, it was just absolutely perfect. And anybody out there, you know, indecisive goes, she must be great. She has a last name, Waldo, so I'll, I'll definitely uh, vote for her. But you were one of the 
uh, first of two women on the Jackson County Legislature. Who was the other woman? Uh, Mamie Hughes. Okay. Was the other woman. And there were 15 of us at that time. And it was a motley crew. It was an amazing <laughs> combination of people coming from every persuasion, ranging from Dr. Harry Jonas to uh, Pat Rios. I could, I could go on and on about that group. It was a cross-section of America. There's no doubt right. about that. And I learned a lot. I highly respected Mike White and the job he did as county executive. He was terrific and really put good people around him. So that enhanced the experience for me. But I didn't want to run for re-election to the county legislature because it was becoming apparent to me that for where I lived within Kansas City, Missouri, the real action was in city government. Right. So that's why I decided to run for the 4th District at Large seat and was elected. Those were really difficult years during that four-year term. We had two firefighter strikes where the police took on firefighting activities. Right. We had the camper roof partially collapsed. Right, after the rainstorm. We had the, we had mm -hmm. the Hyatt. Yes. So Skywalks it was an, an amazingly challenging four years. That's not to say that that was the reason when I ran for re-election in 1983 that I lost. I lost in the primary, and I had everybody running against me. I had Jim Heater and Catherine Shields and four or five other people. So I just assumed when I lost that even though I look back on those experiences being good ones, right. I would not be involved as a candidate ever again. Not so much because in I, anything. Correct. Yeah, yeah. Not just be not so much because I didn't want to or I was bitter because I didn't feel that way. I just assumed my political career was over. Mm -hmm. And then somebody convinced you to run for well, right after you were done there, how long before somebody convinced you to run for mayor? Well, that was 83, and then for those seven or eight or more years, right. I was out on the road. Now you're on the speaker's tour, yeah, right? And you were the first. cities a year. Oh, my gosh. And you were the first woman on that National Speaker's Bureau. That With that particular one. With, with that particular group, and you were the only woman amongst all that group of speakers that you're the only woman. So that was, to me, that must have been gratifying for you at, at that point, and I'm sure you started to see more women added as you went along, right? Well, yes, for sure, and it was it was an amazing experience. As I think about it now, you know, flying out of Kansas City on a Sunday afternoon or evening, getting to Denver that evening, doing a six-hour seminar, usually with 100 or more people, right. getting on the plane in the late afternoon, flying to Salt Lake City, doing the same thing, flying to Oakland, doing the same thing, and then San Francisco and then L.A. and then flying home Friday night. I did that for several years, over 100 cities a year. Wow. 
What great preparation, though! Oh, it to be was. a politi- to be a mayor, to be a mayor, a mayor uh, candidate, a candidate for mayor. Yeah, exactly. And what was your what was your message, or what were you talking and speaking a, about to those groups? I did a lot of work with women and le- leadership for women, uh, communication skills, and so on. Some of those topics, though, were both for men and women. Some time management. Uh, but that kind of content area. And it was really a fascinating introduction to me to different parts of the country because I might be in Detroit, downtown Detroit, with primarily uh, minority women. Right. And then the next day be someplace else in a suburban area where it was a very different audience. Right. So it was a great experience in adapting myself to what I began to perceive as subtleties in the audiences so that I think they began to trust, particularly with minority women, that I was okay. You know, right, those exactly, and it takes a while. Mm-hmm. That they began, and I be, would began to be more able, I think, to interact with different audiences. So it was a great experience. Yeah, right. And that built your base for what you're eventually going to have to do as you ran for mayor. It was also, I think, you were always a proponent of face-to-face communication and just always thought that was that was the key to success in life was face-to-face communication. Yes, and it sometimes drives me crazy <laughs> now. How you mean you're not on your phone 24-7 texting everybody? It, <laughs> Uh, it, it bothers me, uh-huh. and I, I remember in the, I think it was the 1970s, talking about, as I began to do public speaking, and I don't remember who used the phrase at that time, that as the next 30 or 40 decades emerged, this is what this person was saying, we need two things, high tech and high touch. We've got the high tech, but I think we're lagging behind with the high touch. And that obviously is the face communication, right? Communication. And the amazing thing is high tech ruined the face to face for all practical purposes. So what they were preaching, they weren't it just it just didn't ever come across. So Well, I'm hoping that there it changes, are yeah. vestiges of that <laughs> operating enough like you and me, the right. two of us having this conversation face to face. Yeah. That there will be a continuing recognition that we cannot allow that to go away. Yeah, and COVID didn't help it. No. Okay, so that that sent everybody home. That sent the cockroaches scrambling when the lights went on, right? right? Everybody just went home, and you never heard from them again, or if you did, it was either a phone call or mostly it was just text messages or emails or something yeah. like that. But, okay, so now we're getting towards the ni- late 1990s, and you're still out there doing – your speaking engagement, who was the first person or group that approached you and said, hey, how would you like to run for mayor? <laughs> well, it was 1988. We oh, had to, we wow. We had to go back to that only because yes. I was giving uh, seminars two, in a ro- two days in a row in Honolulu and at a hotel pool in the late afternoon, I met my second husband. And he was a vice president with Abbott Labs in Chicago. So 
we met in early 1988 and were married in late 1988, and I moved to Chicago. So we lived there for four years before he retired and then went into consulting work and we moved to Kansas City. The real key in terms of my returning to politics is due to Emanuel Cleaver because Emanuel and I had served on the city council during those four years, both of us coming on as new council members along with Jerry Riffle. So we had great experiences in being the new kids on the block. It was not, it was an amazing experience. But anyway, Emanuel and I built a relationship at that time. So by the time I moved back to Kansas City, he was mayor. Right. And asked me after I had been back for a couple of years, it would probably have been 1995, 1996, to go on the TIF TIF Commission, the Tax Increment Financing Commission, and become its chair. Okay. Which I then did, and it was uh, a wonderful reintroduction to city government, city politics, my understanding, learning more about economic development in and right. of itself. And how things had changed since you probably were on the council originally. So Emmanuel could not run for re-election because of our eight-year term limits. Right. So that seat was going to be open as mayor in the 1999 election. So I decided to run. And it was interesting. It helped me understand the fire in the belly illusion. Yes. Because that's exactly what I felt. I wanted to win. What was most important to me was running. I had literally this internal sense that I should run. And whether I won or lost was not as important as running. Right. And uh, in that time, there had never been a female mayor. So I guess it was that was part of the fire in the belly, too, because I think at that point, too, at the end of Mayor Cleaver's term, uh, things had sort of stagnated in Kansas City and he he was going to be going. So it's always tough at the end of a term to get anything done. And you're running into roadblocks left and right. And he was going to be going. So I think everybody sort of wanted to rejuvenate and re-kickstart economic development, the urban core, everything else was sort of falling behind here nationally. And there you are, you end up being a candidate and then winning the race. How tough was that inaugural race for you to to be mayor? Well, it was tough in the sense that it was hotly contested. There were several candidates, George Blackwood and I came through the primary. I had a wonderful team of of professionals uh, helping me, really running the campaign. Sure. So Steve Glorioso being one of them who then continued on with me those eight years as an inside consultant on my staff, and he he was instrumental. Good Villanova man there, okay? You are right. (laughs) And, you know, just as a quick aside, one important thing I learned from him along with a lot of things And Pat Gray was my campaign manager, and he was the other key person. But Steve, whenever I would begin to get frustrated with media, he said, you can either give them a story 
or you can avoid them and withdraw, and they will do a story from another perspective. Right. Oh, that was such a valuable lesson. So he get out in front. Yeah, yes. he was instrumental in keeping me on track. So <laughs> many times I cannot even remember. Yeah, well, I, I know all our political reporters in time. I was a sports guy. Okay, I got in enough trouble. But I remember political reporters, and they could be they could be a little tough to work with sometimes. You know, it's really so. You get now you're in the middle of campaign. The vote's coming up. How did you feel you stood at at that point when it got down to the election? We had done enough polling to know that I was in pretty good shape. Yes, but certainly no guarantee. However. I don't remember what the division was in terms of my winning in the final election. <clears throat> but we knew fairly e early in the evening that I had won. So that evening was not one full of tension and concern. We really knew by 7, 7.30 in the evening. So then we were able to devote the rest of the evening to planning the big celebration yes. press conference mm -hmm. and all of that. Yeah. So that, that was good. Yeah, right. Absolutely. And it didn't surprise you at all that you'd won the election. You went in with a fire in your belly. You went in meeting people and you just felt, it's what I'm going to do. And Well, I had confidence that I had done everything I could yes, do. Yes, right. So, again, I am the type of person that we're going to wait till the final result to be <laughs> sure. I didn't want to jinx yourself. I think I <laughs> felt that I had probably the better chance right. of winning. Okay. So you win. You know there's tremendous problems in, in Kansas City at that time. Um, not, I don't want to go step by step through your eight years, but first thing on the agenda, do you remember the first thing that was on your agenda when you took office, the first thing you wanted to do? No, I don't remember what the first thing was that I wanted to do specifically. I certainly wanted to work with the city council to the degree possible so that appointment of committees and sure. committee chairs and so on, there's all of that that goes on. I was very aware early on that there were big questions beginning to be raised about the downtown, greater downtown and the downtown loop. Right. I had served up until the time I was elected mayor on the Greater Kansas City Sports Commission for at least the last two prior years. And one of the main agenda items for that group was identifying an outside consulting group to do an assessment of whether we could have a new arena with or without an NHL or NBA franchise. Right. So... That was very much in my awareness from simply having been around that decision-making process. So I knew that a new arena was a possibility. The Civic Council at that time had started the Sasaki consultation, the firm out of Boston that came in and did a very in-depth analysis, interviews, and so on, attempting to determine what options might work best for the rejuvenation of our downtown. So right. that was going on. And it happened that Paul Kopakin and others who were very involved in the Civic Council were also very supportive of me. 
So we were already friends, and it was relatively easy for me then to work with the leadership of the Civic Council, the Sports Commission, and other relationships that I had developed over the years. So the stars began to align in terms of there being a recognition among many in both the private and public spheres that we had to do something. And in fact, we probably were going to have to do several somethings all at the same time. We were not going to have the luxury of taking on one big project, taking it to completion in the greater downtown, and then the next one. We were going to have to move multiple initiatives forward at the same time. Right. And you know, I think one of your main purposes was to revitalize that urban core, so that played into it as well. But I know the city council, they all have their own districts, and, well, I need this. I don't need an arena downtown. I need I need more streetlights here. I need sidewalks. I need infrastructure over here. Uh, it, it eventually, it worked, as we all know, beautifully. But how much of a, a, a give and take was that, which politics should really be, is give and take? I had to take a lot of time to, and I don't regret it, it was necessary to talk endlessly to groups about investment Mm -hmm. and that it is through investments in economic development that the tax revenues are generated to then feed into the city coffers to enable taking care of infrastructure needs, Mm -hmm. neighborhood concerns, and so on. So I think enough people and organizations began to get that, that it was not just about new buildings downtown. It was about, again, the tax revenues that would be generated as a result of that. And I think there's been ample proof that that has occurred and is still occurring, which is the really good news about Kansas City. Yeah, right. And then deal is the, the the arena and the power and light district are still generating a lot of money uh, because the arena is full a lot because of instead of having an NBA or an NHL team, which was the push and shove and why didn't we get this and well, what happened the whole day? But the arena is operating like 300 and some days a year, whereas if there's an NBA or an NHL team, they're going to take Fridays, Saturdays, and probably Sundays too. You know, the hockey team's in for Friday and Saturday, and the NBA team comes back on Sunday or just the opposite. And the concert circuit at that point would just bypass Kansas City and go, we can't get any good dates, so we don't just want to come in the summer. We want to come all all year round. So that uh, that was a big deal. So how... Well, I have a great NBA story. Okay. (laughs) We had spent a considerable amount of time when the arena was being built. And as you know, it was built to NBA and NHL franchise standards. Mm -hmm. It still is that way. And that's another kind of untold story. But during this whole process, we would go to New York periodically, and David Stern was the head of the NBA at that time, and he was a tough dude <laughs> and was got so angry with us at times because we would not take on a WNBA franchise. Right. So anyway, I had developed this uh, friendship with him, 
I got a phone call from David Stern in my office one day while all of this was going on. And he said, Kay, I want to tell you something. He said, you know, there's a lot of talk right now about this man from Oklahoma City who's purchased the Seattle NBA team. Right. Supersonics. And he said, this is a direct quote, I want you to know that under no circumstance will there ever be an NBA franchise in Oklahoma City. <laughs> David. <laughs> David, that's not exactly true. Is that great? That is that is great. They end up going to the Oklahoma City Thunder. Oh my gosh. That's uh that's a great story. That is awesome. So, but after it happened, did you ever hear from David Stern again? <clears throat> oh, I'm sure there were subsequent uh, brief conversations. But by that time, <laughs> we had explored to the degree that could be explored both of those franchises. And you know as well or better than I do that sure. without local ownership, ownership right. and a gigantic investment of money with the NBA even more than the NHL, that it isn't going to happen, and right. that just didn't emerge to the degree that would have been necessary. And obviously, as you were describing, we have gained the benefits of that ever since because the infusion of money even into the city coffers right. each year from our arrangement with uh, AEG has just proven to be terrific. Yeah, right. And then I know, I think several years later, I forget even the basic date, but then cities started to use us as leverage with our arena. They'd go, I remember the Pittsburgh Penguins. They were trying yes. to get a new arena in Pittsburgh. Okay, yes. it's my old hometown. So they're trying to get a new arena for the Pittsburgh Penguins, and they start floating out the rumors. Well, Kansas City's wide open. They're looking. They get this NHL 21 group, and they're they're wide open. They're looking. They're 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 Ponding on us to move to Kansas City and, you know, build us a new arena. I just can't guarantee whether they're going to stay in Pittsburgh any longer. All of a sudden, Pittsburgh has a brand new arena, you know. But that that has now calmed down, I think, a lot with AEG and being there and being so successful. And you also had not just AEG, but you had to get Cordish to come along to build the P&L right across the street from your – you could have, you know, you could have just built the arena, okay, and just, okay, here's the arena – There'll be a restaurant over here, and there's a President Hotel, and we have a couple of those things. But in entertainment district, we're not even thinking about that. But you were planning that at the same time. And like you said, you want to bring these projects on together instead of piecemealing them out. Well, and it really made a big difference in both AEG and Cordish being willing to even look at Kansas City. And in both cases, with Tim Liewicki, whom you oh, yeah, know from, from the comments and knew, was when Herb Kahn and I first called Tim when he was heading up AEG in LA and began to talk about Kansas City and wouldn't AEG be interested right. in an arena. I can remember Tim with his typical enthusiasm. I love Kansas City. Kansas City is a great city. And no, we would not be interested. That was basically the <laughs> yeah. message. Right. And the same thing happened with David Cordish when we first contacted him because Andy Udris, who then headed up the 
our Economic Development Corporation had been an intern with David when David headed up the UDAG division of HUD in Washington in previous years before he went into right, the housing private. and urban development. Yeah. So Andy said we ought to call David Cordish. I think he would remember me. So I remember that conference call, and David very nicely said we would not be interested at all. However, a couple of weeks after that, Andy and I were going to be attending a conference in Washington, and David's offices were based in Baltimore. So in that conversation, after he had said they would not be interested, we just said, or Andy said, would it be okay with you if the mayor and I just came by your offices to say hi and learn a little bit more about what your company is doing? And, of right. course, David was flattered that we were interested. That opened the door. It took a lot more work, but gradually they began to come on board. And right. then H&R Block, because these others were in the works. Nobody wants to be left out at this point, That's okay? Right. So it, <laughs> it all really began to evolve. Early conversations about the Performing Arts Center, certainly the early developers who took some of the older big buildings, mm -hmm. skyscrapers in Kansas City, and began to convert them to housing. That yep. was another important part yeah, of the Yeah, one process. light, two light, yeah, all, all those areas downtown, which is now— Well, even earlier than that, some of the older buildings— Oh, yeah, some of the warehouses that they yes. had converted into condominiums and apartments. Yes, yes absolutely. Yeah, right, right near there. You have to be, to be very proud of what has happened with that as well since that period of time and the way it is flourishing. And I know it's— if. If there's not a concert there or something, the restaurants don't do very well. But that's I think that's natural in any big city when you, you have a an entertainment district built around a stadium. When the stadium or the arena is full and, and there's something there that night. And I think that's one of the reasons why with all the concerts, I think that has really helped. Well, I do too. And I always want to pay tribute to Brenda Tennant. Who yes was our first manager of the Sprint Center. And, you know, her life story is worth a book. Phenomenal. In yes. terms of moving up throughout the United States in the arena world and being recognized internationally as mm -hmm. the top arena director or general in manager in the world. More than one year she has received that designation. And I remember so vividly when we finally found out that we were going to get Brenda from L.A., where she had been running the yeah, Coliseum, you know, Staples, the Staples Center mm -hmm. and the Home Depot Center and two theaters all at the same time. So anyway, I knew what would happen. There was a very brief two-paragraph article in the Kansas City Star announcing that Brenda Tennant with AEG, that was basically all it said. Right would be coming to Kansas City to be the general manager. And as I predicted what happened, somebody, I don't remember who it was, came up to me that day and said, well, now is this woman, Brenda Tennan, going to be able to manage the Sprint Center? And I said, well, I think so. She's done four Academy Awards, three Grammys, the Democratic <laughs> National Convention, and the NBA Finals. I think she'll be able to manage the Sprint Center. And, of course, she's been absolutely remarkable. Yeah. She is so well-known, as you know, in the entertainment world, 
in the sporting world, and even though she has retired, it's why Garth Brooks came here. Seven nights. It's why Tina Turner did her rehearsals in Kansas City for her last worldwide tour. Entertainers and their staffs love her. She really has done a remarkable job. When you figure at Staples Center when she was managing it, she had two NBA teams and one NHL team running in and out of the Staples Center in addition to concerts. How do you do ice in an NBA game in one day? Melt the ice or put the floor over it and somehow it doesn't come up as condensation or whatever for, for the basketball players. Yeah. And when you met her, you had no idea. If you didn't know who she, you know, the people introduced me to her. I said, Brennan, oh, yeah, Brennan, you're running, you're doing a great job down here. And, but to not know her background, you would never know it. She was so down to earth and so nice and just, she was so casual. Yes. She was just always so casual. No big deal. No, it's just fine. Everything's good here. She came here and probably thought, I just died and went to heaven. I got rid of the two NBA and the NHL teams and the concerts. I'm in great shape here. Well, and you probably know that her mother worked at Kemper Arena when Brenda was growing up. And so Brenda would run errands. And that's when I think she probably first encountered the Lie Wickies was during that same Yeah, when the Comets were in there, yeah. But that, Brenda is a wonderful person, and I would always laugh when I was asked to be on a panel with her. I knew what would happen. I could have gone and sat in the audience as soon as people <laughs> found out about her background, the, all the questions. Right they to were her. only to Brenda. Right. It was predictable. Yeah. We have to be proud of what you did as mayor here in Kansas City. And, and I've got to ask you, of course— you have to be, um, I'm going to assume you're great friends with Carol Marinovich. Yes. Okay. I mean, here you are, you're the face, the first female mayor of Kansas City, and all of a sudden, here comes Carol Marinovich. She becomes the first female mayor of the unified government of Kansas City, Kansas. So you wh- tell, tell me about that relationship, sort of, and when that began, and how much she leaned on you to try to give her the ins and outs and what you are about to face as, as you run for mayor. Actually, she preceded she pre- me. Yeah, just, yeah, so you're right So I yeah. really was the one who was relying on her more than the other way around, although we developed a, a friendship, a collaboration. We did some things together intentionally. Right. We, we worked with a group of state line mayors to do whatever we could to lessen the perceived friction between Kansas and Missouri. So she was really helpful to me. Right. Okay. So, so let me correct myself and I'm sorry I made a mistake there. She was in before you. How much did you lean on her? Well, I, I did particularly related to economic development because she had gone through some of the wars already in terms of everything she was working on in Kansas City, Kansas. And I remember one specific conversation I had with her. It was in the lobby area of the Hyatt. And it was prior to, I think, a Chamber of Commerce dinner. And I was so frustrated because we were in the middle of working on all of these development agreements and these attorneys representing the different interests kept saying, 
using phrases like, well, this will be a deal breaker or whatever. Right. And I was going nuts because I was taking that literally. And I, as Herb Kahn told me later, just because they say that, that doesn't <laughs> mean that's what they're going to do. So then I thought, oh, okay. So anyway, Carol was so helpful in calming me down and commiserating with me and acknowledging, well, that just goes with the territory. Okay. So just stay focused on the goal. Right. And that's what you did. And that yeah. was my role. Right. And she did such a great job over yes. there as well. Yeah. It's amazing. You two were first female mayors and it was so close. Yes. I mean, you're just one was there and two years later, you're the mayor over here. So that was, uh, and I'm sure it was a collaborative effort because we're right across the river and I know they're it's different. Okay. It's the state of Kansas, the state of Missouri, but there were many things that you could just talk about and hash out a little bit as, as you went through your terms, right? Yes, very yeah. much so. Yeah. And we've continued to occasionally speak on panels together and see each other periodically. Yeah. We're on a committee together, a couple of committees at the chamber. So it's great to every once in a while touch base. That's right. So you're out after eight years. You get two terms. You won two elections and moved through there. You got the Sprint Center set up. You got uh, P&L set up. And the Urban Corps is is doing better okay at, at that point she must have felt when you stepped away you must have felt you know i left the i left this in in, in pretty good shape for the next mayor well, i certainly felt good about that the only regret was that there was so much focus and publicity and so on on those developments that i think some people had the impression i didn't care about the rest of the city right or wasn't really engaged in rest of the city and that, that's not true I certainly understand, though, how there would have been that perception. Yeah, right, because uh, East Village never really did rebound or has never rebounded uh, from that point. And that's what they're talking now about stadiums. All that, but we're not going to get into, you know, that that area or th that area, the, the political spectrum at this point as they try to uh, uh, change and uh, bring baseball to downtown Kansas City. So we will we will move away from there. And let's talk a little bit about since that time. And I know now you're at Park University, Director of Engagement at Park University. How did all that come about? And was that what else did you do since your mayoral run in the Park University? Uh, well, the big thing I did, big in the sense of time commitment and experience and really a set of amazing experiences, was running for Congress the year after I right. ran out of office <clears throat> as mayor against Sam Graves, who had uh, was an incumbent yeah, it was in tough. office, yeah. still is yes, in he's office. Still there. Mm -hmm. The district included the northern part of Kansas City, Missouri, north of the river, and also included St. Joe and Maryville and all the way up to the Iowa border and then east toward right. approximately Moberly, as I recall. It was the best of worlds, and it was the worst of worlds. The worst of the experience was the fundraising. For 18 months, five to six days a week, six hours a day, I was on the phone, sitting at a table, usually, unless I was in the car or someplace else, sure. sitting across from one of the staff people, calling people, asking for money. Wow. It was a horrendous experience. And I only appreciated that it wasn't just me who thought it was horrendous when a long time 
congresswoman from Chicago, I'm not remembering her name right now, said to me in a conversation during my campaign, don't you just hate fundraising? And I said, oh, yes. She said, I remember one day when I had to have a root canal, and I was really looking forward to it because I knew that day I wouldn't have to make phone calls. Or maybe the day after, too. It was just terrible. The best part of it was the opportunity to travel all over the district, meet a ton of people, many of them living in small towns Mm -hmm. with great devotion to their community, recognizing the changes occurring in rural America, at least in rural northwest Missouri. And I so wanted to have the opportunity to work with them in doing some things that I think could have made a difference. And it was also great for me because I had a lot of national support in the Democratic Party and really got to know some of the key players, Nancy Pelosi, Steny Hoyer, and right. others. And that was a great experience to be able to have that exposure. So I obviously lost my bid for uh, election to Congress. And then it was at about that time that I became affiliated with PARC, originally teaching in at the graduate level in the public administration mm-hmm. uh, master's program. Did that for eight, nine, ten years, and then for the last several years have been in more of a consultant role and a community advisor and right. so on, which I really enjoy. Yeah, and Park's such a great school. I, I think some, you know, sometimes you can't see the forest for the trees. Uh, like you said, that is a great university. Well, I mean, they have an internet. Their their student population might be more internationally blended than almost any other place that I can think of. It's either 65 or 75 countries currently represented in the student body. Right. And then in addition, as you may know, there is a second campus that's now being developed in Gilbert, Arizona, a suburb of Phoenix. Phoenix, right. And in addition, there are 30, 35-plus campus centers around the country, most of them affiliated to some extent with military bases. So it's an amazing story. And Park University just has all kinds of good things happening. Well, they have you as well. And I think that is uh, really terrific. So what does Kay Barnes do for fun these days? I mean, here you are. It just sounds like you have no time. I can never go on vacation. I'm still doing all this. I'm still working. What what does Kay Barnes do for fun these days? Well, you know, I'm not really what I would call busy based on well, what, what you used I to used be. to yes. be busy. Right. I serve on a, a, a couple of boards, and I have the park affiliation. I play golf some. I've been a lifelong golfer. Since 10. I mm-hmm. love sports, so obviously I'm a huge Chiefs fan, huge K basketball, KU basketball fan, and oh my gosh, I'm getting excited about KU football. Yes, they're doing very, very well. Yes, so they are. that's uh, fun for me. Uh, that's a lifelong engagement for me in yeah, the world right. of sports. That that's really important. Always has been. Uh, I'm a voracious reader. 
I will read almost anything. I range from true crime to very kind of semi-deep nonfiction mm-hmm. books and everything in between. People laugh when they see the books that I read sometimes. <laughs> They're wondering, you might have Harry Potter over here and, you know, <laughs> 10 ways to get your mind right on the other side, right? Absolutely. That's true. <laughs> that sounds, yeah, that sounds great. And then I know because you're affiliated, did, was there ever any thought anywhere? I know you lived in Chicago for a few years and, and then came back. Was there any thought in your mind to not be here in Kansas City and what it was about Kansas City that and what this is all about, this podcast, is there's just something about this area. Was there ever any any thought of you, oh, I think I'll move here. I think I'll move over there. I've never had that thought. And I enjoyed those four years in Chicago because my husband at that time, who subsequently passed away, had a great group of friends and his children lived there and so on. Sure. So. It was a great four years. I was thrilled when he suggested that maybe we would. He suggested this. Oh wow! How about that? So I was, you know, it ended up being great uh, to be able to do that. I think Kansas City is a terrific place. I love that it's right in the middle of the country. There's something about that insular nature that I think is making Kansas City more and more attractive to larger number of people and organizations and so on because of its location, where I think in the past it was sometimes viewed as not so Right, flyover country. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I feel good about that. I think that, again, going back to sports, this recurring theme in my life, (laughs) the fact that we have these incredible sports facilities. There is no city in the United States, because I've thought about it and done a little research, that unless it's changed, has the accumulation of really amazing sports facilities as we have in the Kansas City area. And of course, we're going to get a brand new one on the riverfront. Yeah. So, So that's a factor. The cultural, the arts world is really amazing. And I did serve as a member of the Kansas City Arts Council for a period of time. And it really reminded me of all that we have here related to a variety of cultural experiences. And then we have our friendliness and the fact that we're nice, by and large. (laughs) I remember so clearly, I think I was mayor at the time, but I was downtown and was walking down the street with a man who was in Kansas City for some professional reason who was from the East Coast. He'd never been to Kansas City, and he was very much kind of the stereotype. East Coast guy. East Coast business Direct. guy. So we're walk- <laughs> we've been walking for about two blocks. It was a beautiful day, so there were a lot of people out walking. And finally, he stopped on the sidewalk and turned and looked at me with this look of puzzlement, to say the least. And he said, I have a question. And I thought, what's the problem? And he said, why are all of these people smiling at me? (laughs) It was just priceless. And I said, well, that's just what we do. 
he was so taken aback by that. And you know, we and then I began to watch it. Mm-hmm. And we do. It's amazing. I would say 75% of the time, if you're walking on a street where people are coming at you on a sidewalk, more people than not will smile. Right. That's what, and that's Kay Barnes has always said the communication thing, you can communicate with your eyes yeah. alone. And I did the same thing. I'm from the East Coast and went to school in the East Coast and the whole deal. And my friends always ask me, why, why are you still there? I mean, what are you, what are you doing? You know, why don't you come back here where we're all miserable and, you know, join us, you know? But then they come and they visit and they're here for a while and they just turn and go, now I know what you mean. So now I know why you're still here. So yeah. even my mom and dad who are lifelong residents of Pittsburgh, every time they came here, they just went, this is really, this is really a good place. These people are really, really nice people. I said, yeah, they are, because mayor, as we say, there's just something about Kansas City, and I can't thank you enough for all you've done for us that way, and for you coming in here today to talk to us about it. We just think you are one of the reasons why this place is the way it is. Thank so, you. I've really enjoyed the conversation. You thank you so much. Remember, folks, there's just something about Kansas City.